Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Chucking on, chucking on. Yeah? Keep on chucking on. Yeah? Yeah. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm pretty excited that we're getting such a string of interesting and good movies in a row for the show. It's uh, been a nice change of pace from some of the earlier B-movies in this decade. Yeah, where it was just a string of, like, flops, basically. Well, or just, like, the same tired stuff over and over, yeah. So today we're watching The Leopard Man from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur. And this is a Val Luton film that neither of us have seen. Yes, that's right. This is going to be our first time with The Leopard Man. It's part of the Val Luton box set I got you for Christmas a couple years back, but we haven't managed to get around to it yet. What what are your expectations? What do you think we're going to be getting? My expectations are pretty high, uh, just from how much I like the other Luton-Tourneur collaborations. That being said, I also, like just in my general pop culture osmosis don't hear as much about Leopard Man as I do about, like, Cat People and I Walked With a Zombie, which makes me think, like, my expectations are high, but they're a bit tempered. Like, I don't expect it to be as good as those previous two movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm very interested to see what this movie is like. I would be misrepresenting the truth if I didn't say that getting around to seeing some of these other Val Luton movies wasn't, like, a big part of wanting to do this podcast. (laughs) I have no idea what to expect. I've seen clips from this movie that make me pretty excited. But I'll be honest, um, back before we were doing the show, we had watched Cat People, which you know my, my opinion on it. It's great. And then I walked with the zombie... And then The Leopard Man, that title is just such like a, it feels a step down. I mean, I Walked With a Zombie is not a great title. Fair, but Cat then, People isn't a great title. It just, I remember before hearing a bit more w- about what this movie is about, I was like, Leopard Man, but we already did Cat People. Like, why, why are we bringing an animal person Again. Um, but I mean, that's kind of the point, though. Yes. Um, the Leopard Man was the first Tourneur Luton production to be um, produced after Cat People had been released and gotten its immense success. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title was selected by RKO's marketing department specifically to capitalize on Cat People. And the advertising campaign was devised to suggest that the film was about a man-leopard hybrid monster. Which I can see why they would go that route. Luton, of course, had different ideas, and he instead decided to adapt Cornell Woolrich's novel Black Alibi as -hmm. the basis for this movie. Now that's a title. (laughs) I guess Cornell Woolrich has had more film noir screenplays for... 
radio, and film adapted from his works than any other crime novelist. Okay. That's interesting, because I, I don't recognize his name. He, he doesn't strike the same kind of bell with me as, like, a Raymond Chandler or a Dashiell Hammett. Yeah. I think part of it is the volume of his output. Hmm. Um, in total, he wrote over 250 titles for novels and short stories. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, y- you get enough out there, more opportunities for things to be adapted. Of course, you're going to get this title of most things adapted. Hmm. Cornell Wolvich was born in New York City in 1903. His full name is Cornell George Hopley Wolvich. Oh, okay. That feels like he should have been born in the South instead of, like, New York, but... I don't know. (laughs) He started school at Columbia University in 1921, but he left before graduating. During this time, he became very sick... And while he was stuck in bed, he wrote his first novel, Cover Charge, published 1926, which was inspired by the work of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, His writing career had a great start both with this novel and a follow-up short story called Children of the Ritz. Um, And the short story won first prize and $10,000 in a writing competition. Wow. $10,000 in the late 20s is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. So this writing competition was put on um, in part with First National Pictures. Mm. Um, And as part of this award, Woolwich moved with his mother to Hollywood to start working as a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. In Tinseltown, he reportedly started to explore his sexuality with some homosexual relationships. He would marry... Violet Virginia Blackton, daughter of James Stewart Blackton, who was a pioneer of stop motion and John animation, though this marriage was annulled five years later based on a lack of consummation. Sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the 30s were not a good time for Woolrich. It included the annulment of his marriage and no screenwriting credits for those 10-ish years. Ouch. Yes. We've seen how people can just pump the shit out, and he didn't have any credits. So by the 1940s, he turned to being a novelist instead of a screenwriter. As a pulp and detective fiction writer, he wrote under several pseudonyms in order to cover just the plain amount that he published. So I mentioned he wrote over 250 titles, and some of his pseudonyms included William Irish... And George Hopley. Either of those names ring nope. bells? Okay. It was under William Irish uh, that he wrote the 1942 story It Had to Be Murder, which was sourced for the 54 Hitchcock thriller Rear Window. Huh. So his mother, whom he had continued to live with, died in 1957, and after that his own health declined pretty quickly due to grief. He faced alcoholism, diabetes, guilt over his sexuality, and, related to the diabetes, an amputated leg, um, until his death in 1968, weighing only 89 pounds. Ouch. Yeah. So out of the 250 or so titles, some notable works that I'll mention is The Bride Wore Black in 1940, which was adapted for screen by Francois Truffaut in 1967, Hmm. under the same title. 
Phantom Lady was published in 1942, which was adapted for film in 1944 by Robert Siedmack, brother of Kurt. Yeah, Robert Siedmack did a lot of film noir. Yeah. And then in 1944, Deadline at Dawn, which was adapted two years later. So you can kind of see, like, ah, his stuff is, like, getting picked up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, 1942's Black Alibi is one of fiction's first kind of slasher fiction stories. Okay. Um, And what's also kind of unique about it is that you see the deaths happen in first person from the perspective of each victim. Oh, wow. Black Alibi features Kiki Walker, who is a new singer in town. To promote her tour uh, across the states, she's she poses with a black jaguar who escapes. You know, this is something that I see all the time in media from the 40s, whether it's like a movies or books or comic books. Um, is this like thing where people do just really crazy and completely ill-advised publicity stunts for, like, very mild things, and that's, like, how the story kicks off. Yeah. And I'm just sitting here, like, in 2019 going, like, is this what people did? Was it like, ah, we have a new breakfast cereal coming out. (laughs) Better, like, get an elephant and let it loose in the town square. Like, why? (laughs) Anyways, so after this failed publicity stunt and this black jaguar escaping, grizzly murders begin with the killing of four young women. Now they're blamed on a jaguar, but Walker suspects that it's someone using the fear of the jaguar to cover their own man-made murders. So Luton knew what he was doing in adapting this story to cover a movie called The Leopard Man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You can see how, like, handed that title, it's like, okay, what can I do with this? And, you know, this is a good book to pair with that. Yeah. Only, like, I guess less than a year published, Mm -hmm. too. I mean, it makes sense, because, like, Luton himself had written a lot of, like, pulp kind of material when he was younger, so it makes sense that he would kind of be still keeping up with like, what's coming out in that world. Yeah, one foot in that scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that, like, the book was one of the first, like, kind of slasher-style things. We've seen a little bit of that here and there. Uh, we've made fun of it a few times. <laughs> um, you know, I think we, we called uh, the Invisible Ray glow-in-the-dark Jason. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly, like, the sort of pop culture obsession with, like, serial killer type murderers, you know, is something we more associate with, like, the later half of the 20th century, especially as you start to see, like, more serial killers getting a lot of newspaper or media attention, like your Ed Geins or your Ted Bundys um, later, you know, in the century. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, obviously Jack the Ripper is an example of, like, an old-timey serial killer (laughs) that everybody knows. But, like, what else was kind of out there for serial killer media back in, like, the mid, you know, the mid part of the century? Well, in terms of media sensation type of real serial killers Mm -hmm. um, that the news would have picked up around on, Jack the Ripper, 1888, is, like, the key example. There's actually... An earlier example in the States, 
Herman Webster Mudgett, also known as H.H. H. Holmes, mm. was committing murders about two years before Jack the Ripper, though he was apprehended in 1894. And of course you have cases of like Sweeney Todd, who, as we explain in the episode on Sweeney Todd, episode 61, not exactly an actual serial killer, but his, uh, I guess, legend, Mm -hmm. his persona has been written about and adapted many, many times by this point. He's what Benito Serino would call Robin Hood real. If you want, listener, you can go and, and Google, like, serial killers before 1900 or something along those lines, and... People have been killing other people in a serial fashion um, for many, many thousands of years. Mm. But I think in the case of Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes is the feeling of a town or suburb kind of being taken hostage by this fear. Mm. Um, So I just want to point out another example of this. In 1918 to 1919, there was the New Orleans Axeman, who was never officially caught. It was a guy who would go around and just murdering random people with an axe that he would find in the person's home. New Orleans freaked the fuck out, and at one point the Axeman wrote into a newspaper and said that he likes jazz music, so if you play jazz music in your home, I won't come. And huh. everyone played it on a particular night. Anyway, so that's just, like, case in point, town is gripped by fear. So what are some of the, like, I guess, defining points we can use to distinguish between, like, talking about a, you know, capital SK serial killer and just, like, someone who has killed a bunch of people throughout their life, like, in a row? You know what I mean? <laughs> What's the difference between, like, Jack the Ripper and, like, Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. Well, according to the FBI, someone who commits at least three murders over around a month-long period and has an emotional cooling-off period is considered a serial killer. Hmm. The key things being that this cooling-off period can be a length of a few weeks, months, years, or more. After committing murders, the serial killer serial killer resumes their normal life. Um, It's not like a sudden spree of killing, like with Bonnie and Clyde. And this this part's a little difficult to nail down what exactly this means, but there's also usually a psychological motive, um, typically sadistic sexual overtones with serial killer killings. Right. It's it's a motive that has to do with, like, wanting to kill people for a certain, like, psychological reason as opposed to, like, oh, I was robbing a bank and he was the guard and he was in the way, or, like, these cops were after me, or, like, this guy stole my wife, so now I want revenge. Like, those kind of, like, hard and real materialist reasons for killing people. Exactly, yeah. So, last week, we put our 100th film on the list, so I took a look through those 100 or so films, um, because I also looked at the miscellaneous list, to see if we had covered films that had examples of a serial killer. Hmm. Now, films that are not horror that have happened by this point, um, these would be more thrillers. Um, We have 1926's The Lodger from Hitchcock, where 
this woman rents out a room and she s- suspects that he's Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Um, 1931 from Fritz Lang, we had M. Right. And 1943, so... This year, either before or after Leopard Man, is Shadow of a Doubt, also from Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. Now, those are not horror movies, as I said, but I haven't seen The Lodger, but at least in the case of M and Shadow of a Doubt, the film is framed on the perspective of someone other than the serial killer. Hmm. Like, Shadow of a Doubt is a great example where it follows the niece, Charlie, as she begins to suspect her uncle of being a serial killer, and M is basically a, a suburb turning on this guy and holding him, like, uh, doing a, a trial of him. Yeah, it's. It, I would say M is from the perspective of the community yeah, yeah. that this guy operates in. And the lodger is really from the POV of the, um, like the, the landlady, yeah. the, the innkeeper. Um, and we don't see any murders happen. In those cases, they're mm. just suspected. Well, in M, there's some, there's certainly some like implied stuff of because in M, he's a uh, a child murderer, and we'll see him like meet a child, walk away, and then you know we never see that kid ever again. Yeah. But you're right, we, there's nothing, there's no on screen like psycho shower scene. <coughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it it all happens off screen, or the movie is taking place after the fact. With horror, that's kind of a different ball of wax because that's kind of where some of these horror movies come from. Yeah, that's your bread and butter. Yeah, where the horror comes from. Um, so as you said, Invisible Ray from 1936, episode 58, if you want to listen to that. Um, that's kind of the one of the closer ones we get to. But again, I wouldn't really call that a serial killer because Karloff has x-ray powers and is going and tracking down people from an expedition and killing them. So he's definitely a murderer, um, but not a serial killer in the sense of, like, it being fairly random or, um, like, the, the motive is revenge on this particular subset of people. Yeah, like, he's committing a bunch of murders in a row, but, like, it's a hit list, right? He's yeah. no more a serial killer than, like, Uma Thurman is in Kill Bill. <laughs> also in 36, we have Sweeney Todd, episode 61. Now that film is on the miscellaneous list, and that's a, a case where you get a little closer to serial killer because it's just whoever happens to come into his shop for a shave. Yeah, I think the problem with that movie is just that, like, the emphasis is so, like, immensely off. Of the, the killing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think kind of the closest we get to how the FBI describes a serial killer is The Invisible Man in 1933. Hmm. Now, there's not really any kind of cooling period with him, But the sheer randomness and um, irrational motive Mm -hmm. is all right up in there. So with these movies mentioned, there are, like, quite a few more that I didn't mention. We have, like, The Monster from 1925, The Bat from 1926, Corpse Vanishes, 1942, arguably even, like, Karloff in The Black Cat, 1934, has committed a series of murders. Yeah, but they're all cases where the the murders aren't necessarily the point, right? Like, Corpse mm-hmm. Vanishes is about trying to, like, get spinal fluid for his wife or whatever, and the bat is more of a um, a burglar who, yeah, yeah. you know, happens to kill people, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, even Dr. X, 1932, the killing is to get skin f to create synthetic flesh. Like, it, it's not killing for the sake of killing. Yeah, it's, it's, in fact, the fact that he's, like, the idea that he's a serial killer is actually, like, a red herring for what the reveal is, right? Like, at the start of the movie, they're like, oh, it's something tied with the moon, and it's blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, no, it's, it's for synthetic flesh. So, you know. So in these examples, the killers are clearly driven by revenge and or madness. Mm -hmm. And I, I would argue that they're also kind of shown to be fairly emotionally distant. I mean, I think the best case for the emotionally distant killer would be Shadow of a Doubt. Mm. But I mean, like, even in Invisible Ray, or the Invisible Man, the Invisible Killer, <laughs> um, you don't really feel c emotionally connected to those people. Um, and I think that's, like, part of the point. Um, these people are to be feared, avoided, and quote-unquote dealt with, mm -hmm. um, usually by the law, but, I mean, even in the case of Dark Eyes of London, 1939, the law's catching up to Bela Lugosi, but he still drowns in the Thames. Mm -hmm. And I think why most of these horror movies have focused on the revenge motive for the killers is because it allows us some kind of feeling of distance from their actions and thereby a little bit of a feeling of safety. Like, I wasn't on that expedition with Bela Lugosi right. and Karloff. I'm in no harm. Yeah, I think the thing that made serial killers like so hard for people to understand for a really long time is you can and you can see it in the movies we've been watching for the show, the idea of like not having a motive, you know, of being kind of very random mm -hmm. is is really like outside a lot of people's ability to comprehend, especially at this time. So everything comes down to revenge or some other, you know, cockamamie scheme because that's easier for an audience to understand. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it is less terrifying in a way too because it's like, well, you know, can't happen to me though. Yeah. And now I think we're, you know, audiences are much more able to tune into that just because we've had so many like serial killer movies and TV shows and things like that. Yeah. This is part of why I think, like, besides the fact that it's ranked so high, the most terrifying example of a serial killer that we have on the list is the Invisible Man because of his lack of rationality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, for the Leopard Man, Val Luton brought Ardell Ray back to write the adaptation. Oh, good. Uh, after being unsatisfied with an initial treatment from Cat People writer DeWitt Bodine. Along with dialogue punch-up writer Edward Dean, uh, Ardell Ray made many budget-minded changes from the novel. Uh, for example, moving the setting from South America to New Mexico, uh, changing the location of the climax to somewhere a bit uh, easier to film, uh, as well as censorship-minded changes, such as changing a prostitute character in the novel to a nightclub performer, and changing the killer's true identity uh, in the story, as well as toning down kind of the nature of his uh, insanity. Mm. In the book, uh, the killer turns out to be like a police officer. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Who's like wearing like animal skins and going around and like doing stuff. 
Okay. Yeah. None of the uh, synopses I found online hinted at, at what it was. They were all very, like, enticing, trying uh, to make me... One of them was from Goodreads, so, like, trying to make me, like, read the book. And, like, the, the like, climax happens in, like, these, like, sewer tunnels underneath the city, and, like, the whole oh, thing... Oh, like, third man style? Yeah, and, this, and it's all, like, set in, like, Panama, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, with his standard $150,000 budget and a four-week shooting schedule, Luton could not afford to shoot on location and instead sent Ray to New Mexico to take photographs of local architecture and interesting subjects and sites to give to his production designers, Albert D'Agostino and Walter Keller, to incorporate into their set designs. Mm -hmm. Once again, Luton and Turner's team included Mark Robeson as the editor and music by Roy Webb, but uh, they have a new cinematographer, Robert DeGrasse, who had been nominated for an Academy Award in 1939 for Vivacious Lady. Mm. And uh, was the founder of Degrassi High in Canada? No. The lead actor here is Dennis O'Keefe, a 35-year-old actor from a family of vaudeville performers. Born Edward Flanagan Jr., he started acting in films in 1931 under the name Buddy Flanagan. MGM signed him to a contract in 1937 and renamed him Dennis O'Keefe. Much better than Buddy Flanagan, especially if you want to be a leading man. He left MGM in 1940 and continued to work in lower-budget productions, such as The Leopard Man. He often played tough guys, but he was equally adept at comedy or as a dramatic lead. He appeared in various small roles throughout his career until his death from lung cancer in 1968. Opposite O'Keefe in the role of Kiki is Jean Brooks, who was born Ruby Matilda Kelly in 1915 in Houston, Texas. After her father's death, she moved to her mother's home country of Costa Rica before coming to New York City as a teenager. She started singing at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel under the name of Jean Kelly, and there she met director and actor Eric von Stroheim, who helped her get into movies. We saw her in a small part acting alongside von Stroheim in The Crime of Dr. Crespi back Mm -hmm. in 1935. Wow. She was like a receptionist at the hospital or something like that. Yeah, I mean, like, that movie had, like, so many small parts. Mm -hmm. After parting ways with von Stroheim in 1936, her film acting career stagnated somewhat with a failed screen test at 20th Century Fox. However, her fluency in Spanish was able to get her a contract at Paramount under the name Robina Duarte to play in Spanish-language films. In 1940, she signed with Universal Pictures, uh, but her first starring role in the thriller The Devil's Pipeline was a flop, and she got very bad reviews for her performance. She was released from her contract, and in 1941, she married writer-director Richard Brooks. She started using the name Jean Brooks for her career due to dancer Jean Kelly breaking into movies in 1942. In 1943, she signed with RKO, appearing in six Falcon mystery movies (laughs) and earning the attention of Val Luton, who cast her in The Leopard Man. The second female lead in the film is actress and dancer Margot, 
born Maria Margarita Guadalupe Teresa Estela Bolado Castilla y O'Donnell <laughs> in Mexico City in 1917. She was trained as a dancer by Eduardo Cancino, the father of Rita Hayworth, and began a career as a nightclub dancer at age nine. While performing at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, she was noticed by writer-producer-director Ben Hecht, who cast the 15-year-old in his 1934 film Crime Without Passion. She also appeared in Frank Capra's 1937 classic Lost Horizon. Her acting career dropped off in the 1950s when her progressive political views saw her blacklisted as a so-called communist sympathizer. After the blacklist, she became an arts and education activist, working on the President's Committee for the Arts and Humanities and as a board member of the National Endowment for the Arts. She passed away in 1985 from brain cancer. It's quite an interesting career mm-hmm. and life. Mm-hmm. Smaller roles in the film are filled by Isabel Jewell and Marguerite Silva. Born in 1907, Jewell had hit it big on Broadway in the play Blessed Event and made her film debut in the 1932 adaptation of the play. She received praise for her role in 1935's A Tale of Two Cities as a seamstress sentenced to the gallows, and that was a film that both Val Luton and Jacques Tourneur had worked on. Her biggest role was in 1937's Lost Horizon, though she also appeared in Gone with the Wind in 1939. By the end of the 1940s, her career had dropped off significantly, and she was often uncredited. She continued to act on television through the 50s and 60s before ending her life by drug overdose in 1972. Oh, that's too bad. Marguerite Silva was a Belgian mezzo-soprano who was most famous for her performance in the title role of the opera Carmen, which she sang over 300 times over the course of her career. Born in 1875, the height of her stardom was in the early 1900s, around 1900 to 1920, uh, when she was as well-known as most movie stars and had her own cosmetics line. Oh, wow. By the 1940s, she was retired from the stage, but appearing in small character roles in movies like this one. So as with Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie, The Leopard Man received largely negative reviews when it debuted on May 8th, 1943, but it was a financial success for the studio. In the wake of the immense success of their first three films, RKO made the decision to move Tourneur and Luton up to A pictures. However, this move came with a price, splitting the two up as the studio figured they could double their productivity and profits this way. Tourneur felt this failed to account for the way the two men complemented each other, saying, Val was the dreamer, the idealist, and I was the materialist, the realist. We should have gone right on doing bigger, more ambitious pictures, and not just horror movies. Luton, however much he wanted to make more respected pictures, recognized that moving to A pictures, especially split up from his creative partner, would lose him the creative freedom he enjoyed as producer of his own unit, and that he would be under greater studio scrutiny. Reluctantly, Luton made the decision to stay right where he was, while Tourneur moved on to acclaimed film noirs like 1947's Out of the Past. 
So, like all of Luton's works, uh, The Leopard Man has been critically reevaluated by modern critics and is now seen as yet another classic effort. It's available on DVD as part of the Val Luton Horror Collection from Warner Home Video. Well, folks, if you want to watch this and or any other Luton classic, find that box set. <laughs> You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Leopard Man from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Leopard Man from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur. Ben, what did you think? You know, this ended up being kind of exactly what I thought it would be in terms of my expectations, which is that I thought this was very good, but not as good as Cat People or I Walked with a Zombie. I would agree. Like we kind of hinted at in the first half of the show, neither of us have seen this, but we, having existed in this world, kind of knew some parts of the plot and some notable scenes, and it's not like this was a disappointment. This isn't a Ghost of Frankenstein situation. Um, But yeah, it's just kind of like, okay, cool. But I mean... It's worthwhile to give credit to competence. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like this is going, like, we have 100 films on the list. This isn't going below 50. You know what I mean? It's in, like, the top half of the list, for sure. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. For sure. Yeah, it's just surprising when uh, the previous two Luton Turner films were top 10, you know, movies, right? So tell us what it's about. So... Spoiler alert, Ben will probably reveal who the killer is. Yes. We're in a small town in New Mexico. I didn't catch the town's name. I don't think they said it. And Jerry Manning is a publicity agent uh, for Kiki Walker, who I think is a singer, but we never see her act, so I have to admit I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. However, she started up as a new act at a particular nightclub. So in order to drum up some excitement and attention for her, Jerry has rented a Black Panther, from traveling showman Charlie Howcome. And his idea is to have her walk into the nightclub while uh, Castanet playing Clo-Clo, who is the current, like, leading act at this nightclub, is performing, and basically draw attention away by coming in with the panther on a leash. Charlie, by the way, his services are under the name of... The Leopard Man. Right. So he's the Leopard Man. Correct. I guess that is actually true. Yes. Clo-Clo, she, like, sees what this is an attempt at right away and decides to strike back, as it were, by clapping her castanets right in the leopard's face, which causes it to freak the fuck out and run away and get loose into the town, which Clo-Clo never really... Uh, shows any guilt or remorse for, or ever really takes responsibility for. Everyone blames Kiki 
which is super not fair. But Clo-Clo is kind of a bitch. Uh, so she is, she's like this, like very kind of self-important stuck up character who just thinks she's the queen of the town. She walks, she she walks home clipping the castanets. And all I could think of was like, I would hate that every day to hear that every day as she walks home. Anyways, we kind of cut from this to a poor family that lives in the town. They, They segue it, but... Um, the point is, we are now with this family, and uh, it's late at night, and they don't have any cornmeal, and so the mother is going to send the, el- uh, the elder daughter of the two kids, her name's Teresa, out to the store to get some cornmeal late at night, which, you know, we've all been in this situation. Maybe it wasn't cornmeal, but your mom sends you out to the store late at night to get something. And Teresa really doesn't want to because, you know, there's a leopard on the loose, and her mom's like, you're going to go out there and you're going to get this cornmeal. I'm going to close this door and lock it and you aren't coming back in until you get that cornmeal. Which, like, that's a bit extreme, Mom, but, you know, okay. So Teresa goes out and unfortunately the nearest grocery store is closed and refuses to reopen for her. So she has to go, like, way cross town. Specifically, she has to go, like, under the train tracks, which are all dark and spooky, and what if the leopard's in there? But it's not, so she makes it to the grocery store, gets the cornmeal, comes back, and the leopard is in there this time. This is also, uh, around this part is when we get uh, this movie's Luton bus, which is when she's coming through the train tracks the first time, and she's scared, and a train goes overhead. But the leopard's there the second time, and she runs, and in grand horror movie tradition she trips and drops the cornmeal but she the first time you've had that i think it might be actually yeah she makes it home but of course the door is locked so she's pounding on the door mama let me in let me in and at first you know mom's all ah you know dumb kid and then like she starts screaming and you hear the leopard growling and you know it's like oh actually okay i need to go open the door but it's like a kind of you know they're a poor family the house is kind of run down and the bolt on the lock is really hard to like get out and they don't get it in time and you just see the blood come seeping under the door and that's like this movie's big scene in terms of like you know the pool scene in cat people or the scene with carrefour in um walk with the zombie at least in my opinion mm-hmm. so The next day, um, the town is sending a posse out to look for this leopard that has killed the girl. And Jerry and Kiki are both, like, really torn up about this girl's death, but trying to, like, pretend that they're not torn up about it because they both are trying to pretend that they're, like, big city tough folk from, like, a movie? Yeah, like, I I didn't quite get that. I thought maybe it was so that blame couldn't be put on them for this death. But it's not. It's like pretending to be tough is like they're like an actual thing that they value just outside of this situation, yeah. right? It's that they're like these tough big city folk and that's like cool. Like it's it's literally like it's a toxic masculinity kind of front, yeah. basically. Yeah. Anyways, so they're trying to put on a brave face, um, but Kiki gives some money to Teresa's family and Jerry ends up going with this posse to go find the leopard. The cops have also brought along Dr. Galbraith, who is played by James Bell, who played Dr. Maxwell back in I Walked With a Zombie. Galbraith is 
a former zoologist from a school out east, but now he runs a museum of, like, indigenous art and artifacts in this small town. He quit teaching out east and came to this town in the middle of nowhere for reasons. Uh, But he's a zoologist, so he's the closest thing they have to a leopard expert. They don't find the leopard. Then we cut to the next victim, basically. And this is young Consuela, who is the daughter of, like, a wealthy family in town, and she's got this boyfriend, Raul, and, you know, she's young, so she can't be going out and seeing boys, so she has to do it under this kind of, like, subterfuge of she's going to the cemetery to visit her father's grave to put flowers on the grave, but, like, that's where she's going to meet Raul. And she kind of gets, like, held up, and she's a little later than she said she was going to be. And when she shows up at the cemetery, the the gatekeeper's like, hey, I closed the gates at 6. And she's like, yeah, all right. (laughs) She goes in, and she's missed Raoul. He clearly waited for her and gave up, and so she's really despondent about this and ends up just kind of sitting in the cemetery really sad until she hears the gates close and lock her inside. And she is frightened. She's in the cemetery alone. And just as she's able to, like, yell to someone beyond the walls to, like, get a ladder or something to help her out, that person goes to get the ladder. And then, like, a tree kind of bends. And she looks up at something and screams. And then it's the next day and she's dead. And there are claw marks on the tree and black hairs to be found and claws. And Dr. Galbraith is like, yep, definitely a leopard that killed her. And Jerry's like... Right, but why, though? Like, it didn't eat her? It wasn't scared and freaked out like it was the first night? Why is it still prowling around inside the town when it could get out into open country? Like, why come into this cemetery? None of that makes any sense. And Dr. Galbraith is like, huh, you know, leopards are weird sometimes. And so Jerry goes to see Charlie and is like, hey, is your leopard weird sometimes? And Charlie's like, no, that's not how leopards act. Um, and he's like, all right, well, I want you to go talk to Dr. Galbraith. So they go to the museum, which is a very echoey place. And Dr. Galbraith is like, I don't know, Charlie, like you get drunk sometimes and black out and like you have access to like leopard claws and hairs. Maybe you killed her and framed your own leopard. And like, and Charlie's like, maybe I did. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, I don't know. Gosh, I feel terrible. Sheriff, lock me up. And Jerry's like, no, Char- you did, oh my god, no. Meanwhile, Clo-Clo, uh, she- Charlie does, he, he gets the police chief to lock him up for the night. Yes. So meanwhile, Clo-Clo is friends with a fortune teller who, uh, also lives in this town. Um, she uses, like, standard, like, royal suites cards to tell fortunes, but it's the same idea as tarot fortune card reading. And this fortune teller keeps reading Clo-Clo's fortune over and over again and keeps getting the same fortune, which is, hey, you're going to die. Finally, she, she, every time she does, she's like, oh, I must have made a mistake and keeps trying to, like, deal it out again. And finally, <laughs> it's like, no, show me the card. And it's like, yeah, you're going to die. Uh, Clo-Clo is trying to basically find herself a sugar daddy at the nightclub uh, because she's actually quite poor and has this large family that she's providing for as this nightclub performer. She ends up kind of getting a hundred bucks from this rich old guy, which is like a big deal for her. And she comes home and she's gotten this you're going to die fortune. So it's kind of put her, you know, a bit on edge. 
And when she gets home, she realizes she doesn't have the $100. She must have dropped it in the street somewhere. So she has to go back out into the street alone at night. She hears what sounds like someone following her. And she thinks maybe it's Carlos, this boy at the grocery store who um, has a crush on her. And so she kind of stops to like put on her lipstick and like check her face in the mirror. And then something comes and gets her and she screams. And the next day she's dead. And Dr. Galbraith is like, yep, definitely a leopard killed her. And uh, Jerry's like, really? Like in the middle of the street at night while she was like standing there putting on makeup? Like that doesn't make any sense at all. A little bit of time passes and Charlie ends up finding the leopard. And it is super dead. And it was way out in the country where the posse was looking for it. But they just like didn't quite get out that far. Except that Dr. Galbraith did go out that far, but he didn't see it. Also, the leopard's been dead for, like, a week. So, you know, Charlie comes back to Jerry's like, Hey, you owe me money for the death of my leopard. And Jerry's like, Wait. Hmm. The pieces are coming to... It's Galbraith. Galbraith is, is the killer. Is the other leopard man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Jerry and Kiki, with the help of Raoul, which... That's a bad, that was a bad call, but they go and get Raoul. They basically telltale heart Galbraith. They kind of just arrange to have, like, you know, as he's walking past the cemetery, a voice say, you know, someone help me out of here. And as he's walking down the streets, the sound of castanets going. And then he gets back to the super echoey museum, and they've got, you know, the clip-clopping of shoes and the sounds of the castanets and everything. And then Kiki... Listen, the people who are trying to, like make him confess, are in show business. Of course they're going to go all out for this. So Kiki comes up to him, and it's late at night, and she's basically trying to goad him into attacking her. And it's basically successful, and when he does, that's when Jerry and Raoul pop out, and they grab Galbraith, and, you know, Galbraith tries to make a run for it, they get after him, and they they grab him and, and run him down, And Jerry's like, why? Uh, Despite the fact that, like, earlier in the movie, we established that serial killers do these things because they're irrational and there's no particular reason. And Galbraith is like, you know, that leopard killed that girl, and suddenly I wanted to kill girls. That's basically his explanation. Uh, He says it in, like, a more, I guess you could say, poetic? Yes. More literary? Dramatic terms. Dramatic terms. It was the fear. Um, Yeah. And then Ralph shoots him. Which, like, yeah, Jerry, you should have seen that coming, bringing the kid along. God damn it, Jerry. And so Raoul has to stand trial, uh, but Galbraith is dead, and Jerry and Kiki have both learned that it's okay to be soft and care about people and care about each other and express their emotions uh, and all of that. A timely lesson for us here in 2019, and that's the end. One thing that Ben just kind of scooted over because it doesn't really relate to the plot is near the climax there's um this sort of i don't want to say festival but this activity going on in the town called the procession um and it's where a group of the townsfolk gather they wear um black robes they're they're catholic penitent robes and this is to commemorate the death of the indigenous folk who lived here when the land was first being colonized. 
when Raoul and Jerry are chasing Dr. Galbraith, they run into this procession. And so it's just like, it's just underlined during the part of the climax. And I think it has thematic use, but not necessarily plot yes, relevant. So for that's sure. why I bring it up. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is, unfortunately, a part of the movie that fell a little flat for me. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's one of the few times in these Luton Turner movies where the budgetary constraints become obvious because they want to have this big procession outside, but they can't afford outside. And it's just like on a soundstage and it's like, has that like Star Trek, the original series feeling of soundstage (laughs) where there's clearly like 20 feet and then you hit a wall that's painted to look like the sky. And, you know, it's supposed to be this big procession of the whole town. And it's like mm, maybe 20 people that we're trying to make look bigger. So it, it just doesn't have the same kind of gravitas that they really want it to have, unfortunately. In fact, overall, this movie feels kind of like Luton and Turner trying to make something a little less ambitious mm-hmm. than Cat People or I Walked With a Zombie. It feels smaller. This is the first one of these that feels like the B-movie it actually is, for yeah. my money. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. Um, and I'm not surprised that they would try to do something less ambitious because they've proven their worth to the studio mm. of, like, why this special little production unit deserves to exist. And now it's kind of like, you know, you got your A, your Mm -hmm. A plus, so now it's okay if you get the B, Mm -hmm. you know? The thing that the movie does that is sort of new is the way that it handles, um, I'm going to call them the scares. Uh, It's still the same Luton strategy of, like, hide things in the shadows and don't really show things and make you as scared by, uh, like... Association. Is scared? Yes. But the big realization this movie makes is that a serial killer means you can have multiple scares in a movie. Mm-hmm. You don't just have to have one big one at the end. And you can give your scares teeth because all the ones before that one at the end can actually kill people. Uh, you don't, you know, the only time you have to actually save someone to live is at the very end. And I think. That's something that's effective here because it alleviates the problem that horror movies have had lately of, like, nothing really happening in them except for maybe, like, one big moment. Mm-hmm. I see where you're coming from. I would argue that they go big with the first death and then go smaller with the following two. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with you. Um, That was my impression as well. The death of Teresa at the start is the film's best scare. Uh, It's profoundly disturbing because it manages to put you in Teresa's shoes for part of it and really evoke that feeling you get when you're walking, you know, somewhere late at night and have to, like, pass by a spooky part of town. And then it flips and puts you in the mother's shoes Uh, for what is, like, got to be any mom's, like, number one nightmare, which is that, like, your kid is dying, and there's nothing you can do, and it's kind of your fault. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's really good. And, yeah, you just have to listen to this girl die on the other side of the door. Whereas the other two, which are murders, done by Dr. Galbraith, they have to hide the fact that it's not the panther Mm -hmm. and kind of evoke that... But, I don't know, I think it's because when Teresa is killed, we see the panther, and we have a moment of their eyes hitting each other, and 
the the terror there. Whereas with all of the others, it's like they see something off screen, we see a branch move, or we see their reaction to seeing something, and then they scream as the screen goes black. And it's still that same Luton, like, keep it in the shadows, keep you guessing, but you're, you've are you 100% hit the nail on the head on what the problem is, which is because they have to keep it ambiguous, you can't get the same level of detail that you get in that first murder. It can't be as graphic. You know, we hear the claws and we hear the leopard roaring on the other side of the door. We don't see the murder, but we're on the other side of the door and we're hearing it happen. And so... I would say the other scares in the movie are still good. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still good scenes, well done. But they're just things we've seen Luton and Tenur do before. You know, kind of walking through the cemetery with the wind howling and what's out there kind of evokes a lot of the scenes from I Walked With a Zombie where she's walking around the... the um, mansion's garden and the scene of Clo-Clo walking uh, through the streets and hearing the footsteps and what's following me is very evocative of the bus scene in Cat People. Yeah. It's the same stuff just in these scenes there's an actual attack at the end of them rather than just being a close call. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would agree with you that they get less affecting throughout the movie and unfortunately I think that's a bit of a problem. The result... You know, the final scares in the movie, the the final act, shift emphasis because now the scares are like the hunter has become the hunted because we're from um, Galbraith's point of view as he's reliving these things, as they're tracking him down, as they're doing the telltale heart thing. The problem with that is the Edgar Allan Poe bit is a little too familiar. So it's it's effective. It works in the movie but it feels a little weak because it's not anything we haven't seen a million times by this point. You know, it's Telltale Heart. It's not, that's not anything new. So the result is you get this movie that starts really, really strong, but kind of peters out as it goes. Mm. I see what you're saying about the Telltale Heart section, um, but I actually disagree. I found that quite um, effective. And I'll tell you why. So one thing that I appreciate that this movie does is every victim gets a feeling of sympathy because we get to see their point of view before Mm. they're killed. Um, So we see Teresa being scared and not wanting to go out and her younger brother kind of mocking her for it. Um, We see Consuela with, like, this very loving family and being pretty pampered in, like, the upper class, but still kind of struggling to find her own independence. And then Clo-Clo kind of has, like, the neatest thing, because she starts out as antagonistic, both, like, narratively as our main lady's rival, but also just, like, scaring the panther off and being kind of, like, too big for her britches. Mm. Yet, as we follow these characters, we go through the emotions with them. And even with Coclo, where we, we hear her story about, you know, being from a poor family and this grocery boy that she's telling this rich guy. Um, and honestly, when she was telling this guy, I didn't believe her. Yeah, same here. I thought it was, you know, some woe is me, I'm so poor kind of stuff. And then she gets home and like, no, nah, that's, that's her situation. And I was like, now I see why she's obsessed with money, Mm -hmm. why she's obsessed with having everyone's eyes on her, because that's how she's going to get money Mm -hmm. and get her family out of this. So I had a lot of sympathy for her. And with Dr. Galbraith, 
it's almost like um, snapshots of him remembering what he's done. Mm -hmm. And at the time when you're following him, you can't tell if it's in his head or if you're actually like if he's actually hearing someone whisper. Yeah, and I I think that's why he kind of tries to shrug it off because like he knows he's crazy. So like yeah. And you can start to kind of see his own internal conflict, which is very humanizing in a way. He's not just a cold-blooded murderer. Um he's someone who Clearly, like, something's gone a little off in his head since seeing Teresa's body and has these urges that he's, like, incredibly afraid of mm-hmm. um, and can't help but satisfy. So I like that they're humanizing him a bit. Um, I will say that the urge to humanize someone who's done brutal things is probably a little bit of, a like, a nugget in our culture's current fascination with serial killers Mm. ted bundy couldn't have done this he's too handsome or like or not that he couldn't have done it but that like oftentimes it's like you know but he was such a sweet boy or whatever like yeah exactly so uh, yeah i think it's a hard line to walk because and i've 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 very rarely seen it walked well Mm mm-hmm Because on the one hand, you have a lot of media where the serial killer is, like you say, like this cold-blooded, like emotionless, faceless killer. I mean, certainly that's the slasher genre in a nutshell, right? And then the flip side of that is when like you get so far into explaining their backstory and their motivations that they become like sympathetic anti-heroes like Hannibal Lecter, where we're like rooting for the cannibal. Um, (laughs) You know, I can think of very few examples where they kind of thread that needle of saying like yes this person has like a problem and you know that problem needs to be kind of addressed and rehabilitated but also they've done terrible things so maybe don't like throw a parade in their honor you know the only example that's coming to mind really off the top of my head is uh like Manhunter um by Michael Mann now I I agree with you that I really like that all the victims kind of get like their own little mini movies Mm-hmm. Like, this movie's kind of like a little anthology movie, almost, where, like, first it's about this poor family, and then it's about, like, this Romeo and Juliet story, and then it's, you know, like... But, yeah. um... But it slows down the movie, and yeah. I think it doesn't work. Yeah, it, it's it's like, okay, now we're over with these people. Like, the problem the movie has is that, and I think this is a problem you can s- continue to see in serial killer or slasher movies for a long time, is... We have the cast of characters that the movie's about, but we also need some fodder, right? We need some victims. So you have some other characters who aren't related. Now, Clo-Clo is like a kind of a real cast member, but by the time she gets killed, she's kind of veered off into her own movie. So it's like, you know who's not going to die because they're, you know, like a real character. And then you have these randos who exist only to die. So as much as, like... Sorry, that's that's just, like, a great, like, band name. Randos that exist only to die. (laughs) Um, So as much as you're right, the movie does a good job of, like, giving them all their backstory. And all that's necessary for us to give a shit, right? Like, for those murders to hit the way they need to, we have to have all of that. But every time we meet a new victim, there is a feeling of, like, wait, who is this? Why are we looking at them? And then an immediate realization of, Right, because they're going to die. Like, that's who this has to be. Now, 
the first two victims are super sympathetic, but I have to raise a little bit of a disagreement about Clo-Clo. I agree that the movie is trying to sympathize her by then saying, like, oh, but she has this poor family, but she's so insufferable for the first part of the movie. Like, I really didn't like her. And when she is the one who's responsible for the leopard running away, you know, which no one ever calls her out on, you get the feeling that, like, if the leopard had been what killed her, the movie would have had this very, like, ah, she got what was coming to her kind of feeling, right? And I can't tell if the movie thinks we still think she should deserve her fate or not. That's why I think there's the fortune teller character in there consistently bringing up Clo-Clo, you're going to die. Because, mm. like, even on the first night when the leopard is still out on the run, mm-hmm. pa- Clo-Clo passes her fortune teller friend who gives her a card, and it's the death card, and Clo-Clo laughs it off and continues walking. So you think, oh, she's going to die, and then she doesn't, and it's Teresa. But then this whole, like, this card keeps coming up, so you feel, like, a sense of dread coming up and inescapable fate. For sure. It's just tough with horror movies because they have to make a choice as to whether to make us feel for the victims Mm -hmm. or want to see the victims get got. There's sort of these two competing impulses at the heart of the horror movie, right? One is to make you afraid and make you want to run away. But there's also that, like, kind of um, horror movie that is there for, like, the gore thing and the, mm-hmm. like, ah, ha-ha. Like, you know, like, there's there's movies that scare you, but then, like, I don't think that's the primary appeal of, like, say, the Friday the 13th movies, which are more about, like, you know, when you look into the fandom of those movies, it's celebrating, like, oh, which movie had the most creative kill and, and this kind of stuff. And when you want the audience to revel in all the bloodshed, then the characters dying have to be unlikable. But if you want the audience to feel, like, chills at the violence, then the characters dying have to be likable. And I think Clo-Clo feels like an attempt to do both in the same character, and it's a little bit of a mess for Mm me. Yeah, I would agree. Um, There is a bit of, like, a thematic nugget that I picked up with these victims, and I don't think the movie is doing enough to really, like, pull it forward in the way that they've done with, like pretty powerful themes in Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie. Um, But I think this nugget is there, and I'm just going to kind of, like, tease it out a bit. Mm -hmm. Sure. So all three female victims are pushing against overarching patriarchal structures. Okay. So Teresa, she is, like, what, 15? At the oldest, yeah. Like... My mom wouldn't send me out at 15 to go down and get stuff from the grocery store. Oh, my be... mom would, so... Yeah, but here's the thing. You're a guy. Sure. I'm a girl. There's certain dangers out there. For sure. And for the mom to, like, send the girl out because either, like, the dad will be mad that they don't have pita bread, or the neighbors will talk that we can't even afford pita bread. Mm-hmm. And the mom doesn't even send the younger brother with her, Mm -hmm. which would be like a fine compromise. Like, oh, you're scared? Little brother, go with her. Mm -hmm. And what also really just really bothers me with Teresa is that at her, um, it's not quite the funeral, right? It's when they're identifying her body and the family 
is there, the little brother is still like making jokey thing, jokey like panther faces oh, in I, shadow. I didn't notice that at all. So it's like he has like no. This has no effect on him. Yeah, I, I didn't even see that. But there's oh. like a lot going on in that scene, and I wasn't. I didn't pick that up. Yeah. So it, it's just like this is a family that doesn't necessarily respect her, um, and. Her mom is kind of in an unhappy marriage if, like, the dad's going to yell at her for not having pita bread. Like, I don't know. I, th- I feel like her, she, she's a little, like, stuck in this patriarchal family and is kind of pushing against it slightly by being like, no, I don't want to go out, and then being sent out anyways. Consuela is a little bit of the same um, for wanting to be independent. She has a bit more of a cushion because of her class, and therefore her mom is like, I get it. I was a young girl once. Don't give away your virginity, but you can go out and have some fun. And then Clo-Clo is kind of an embodiment of, you know, a woman who is trying to make it on her own in this world where, like, she needs to strut about, be confident and haughty in order for her to attain her position at this club. And that's how she's going to get money. That's how she's going to, like, get her family out of this poverty. She is frustrating and a bit much, but you can kind of see why she's doing it this way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say that like these women were punished, but um, more because Cloclo has this reoccurring death card drawn up as part of these tarot readings, these women are pushing kind of against patriarchal expectations and are doomed as a result. And now I'm not saying that the movie's saying this, I'm just saying this is something that I kind of noticed and wanted to point out. I, I don't want to offend. That feels too much to me. Like, that feels like reading too much into something that isn't quite there. Sure. But I will agree that watching the movie, I got the feeling like there was some sort of thematic thread that the movie was trying to draw out and, you know, link these women and link what was happening and I kept trying to connect it to the thematic arc for Jerry and Kiki because they are ostensibly our lead characters Mm -hmm. um you know and Kiki's our our other woman in the movie though to be honest she's kind of the weakest of the Luton female protagonists we've had so far she's shuffled off to the side so jerry can go investigate yeah uh you know to such a degree that as i said during the plot summary we don't even see her perform uh at this nightclub it it felt as i was watching it like the writers were working through something Mm -hmm. but unlike the last two movies whatever that was feels less focused i can't narrow in on it as easily and i think part of it is the fact that jerry and kiki feel like they're off on their own thing to the point where, like, their love story at the end feels so odd. They they feel like... So, okay, Jean Brooks is fine as Kiki, right? Mm-hmm. But the role feels like the kind you'd see in somebody else's horror movie. Jerry's the same thing. Like, Dennis O'Keefe gives a good performance, but he's the kind of, like, handsome, square-jawed, proactive hero that you'd expect out of, like, a universal picture. Like, Jerry and Kiki don't feel like real people the way that people in Val Luton movies feel like real people. They feel like 1940s movie characters who have to learn how to be real people. Like, it feels like some some characters from a movie got dropped into our Val Luton story. (laughs) 
it's very funny that you bring this up because their story is so bland and there's nothing to it compared to the rich lives that we get of even just Teresa mm -hmm. in her, like, ten minutes of screen time. Yeah, I'm not surprised that you were able to, like, draw a bunch of stuff out and weave this interpretation. I don't, I don't agree with the interpretation, but I don't hold anything against you for interpreting it because, like, those, like you say, like, the inner lives of these characters have such... It's not so much that they have detail, it's that they have, like, um... Focus? They're so evocative, right, that your brain starts filling in the details that you aren't being given. Yeah. Because there's such, like, specific things being put there that you can kind of tie it together yourself. And it invites you to think about that. Whereas, like, what the, f like, what the fuck is Kiki and Jerry's deal? Like... Everyone in the town, what's kind of ironic to me is, like, everyone in the town looks at them and is like, oh, show business, you guys. But, like, they're very clearly, like, you know, she's a nightclub singer, and they go from town to town, and he has to think of, like, bad publicity stunts for her. Like, they're clearly not actually that successful, right? But, yeah, their whole thing where they're tough guys, and, like, we don't care about anybody but ourselves, and then they have to learn that, like, it's okay to have feelings and emotions, really feels like... Some 1940s tough talk and like, yeah, see? People, like characters, slowly turning into real people, like Pinocchio becoming a real boy. <laughs> um, in looking at the various women, I was trying to tug out, like, is there something there? Like, like is this idea of, like, it's okay to be soft? Like, something that's in all those stories? But, like, I, I couldn't quite find it. And I don't see the patriarchy thing that you're seeing here either. Other than the fact that, like... If you really look at it, you could say that about any female character in any movie because that's true of any woman throughout history, you know, kind of thing, right? That's why I always kind of hesitate to bring it up because it sometimes I know I can sound a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And the reason why, like, I'm not quite sure about it is, like, I, I see where your arguments are coming from, but, like, we don't see Teresa's dad until after she's dead. Yes, he's invoked as, like, the reason she has to go late at night, but he's not there in the scene. Uh, Consuela's dad is dead. Um, so, like, yeah, he's the reason she gets killed in so much as he's the reason she's in the cemetery. And then Clo-Clo, like, she's got this relationship with the patriarchy that, to me, doesn't feel like pushing against it so much as, like, falling into looking at what roles the patriarchy is allowing for women and picking which one she's doing, rather mm -hmm. than, like, having it told to her. What I saw in all three stories, however, was a relationship with a mother figure. But they were all very different, so I couldn't draw the similarities, right? But, like, Teresa's got this overbearing mother who, regretfully, is the cause of her daughter's death. Consuela has the mother who's like, oh, you shouldn't be going out with boys, but, like, okay, fine. And, you know, and then Clo-Clo's got this mother who clearly is, like, living at home and taking care of the family while Clo-Clo's out getting, you know, getting money on that grind, you know? Mm -hmm. But, like, yeah, I just, I feel like, I feel like the, the, the I'm the detective in the town, you know, who, who's looking at all these women being like, what's the connection? Like, sure. they're all women in families. You got the, the board with right. the string. And it's oh. like, the answer is there isn't a connection because it's a serial killer, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I feel like there's something here, and I agree with you that there's something here, but I think it's a little bit of a failure on the movie's part that we can't definitively put our finger on it. Similar to that point of the film kind of failing here is... What is with this procession? So, like, because it's brought up, it's invoked 
right as we're following Dr. Galbraith, um, before, like, people are, like, haunting him or whatever. Like, a, a girl that we keep seeing, her name's, like, Mary or something. I thought for sure she was gonna die. Right? Anyway, so she's like, Doctor, what, you know about anthropology, whatever, what's with this procession? And he explains, you know, the monks and colonialism. Okay, that's, that's, that's a piece of the puzzle over here. Mm-hmm. All of the girls and women who are murdered are locals. They aren't white tourists. Right. They're from this town. Right. Okay, so we have that. And they are, they are being murdered by some white guy. Yeah, an outsider from the east. Yeah. So that, that's another thing, just putting up on, to, on, on this billboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like this moment when Jerry and Charlie go to talk to the doctor to be like, hey man, like, don't you think it's a little funny? Like, it, it could be a person. And this is when the doctor's like, Charlie, you drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dr. Galbraith is kind of giving a, a, a small tour around the museum, and he pulls out this statue that he claims is of a panther head. And, Charlie, this is what your ancestors used during, like, rituals and stuff. The leopard represented violence. And, like, dominance or some mm-hmm. shit. And Charlie is like, doesn't look like a leopard to me. Yeah. And it, and it, it just struck me that, like, maybe it's because we're just hot off the heels of I Walked With a Zombie, but, like, Dr. Galbraith has access is an outsider and has access to this wealth of knowledge about the history of the culture of the land, everything. And Charlie, who is local, it's his actual ancestors, does not. And so it feels, so that's another thing up on this billboard. So it feels like there's something about colonialism or something like that in this movie, but I don't know how it connects either. Oh, that was super easy for me. That part was all very clear. Oh, um, do tell. Well, so yeah, so you're right. Like, Galbraith is this outsider from the East. He's this, like, you know, white guy who comes to this town, right? And the indigenous people are, are you know, not a big factor. Uh, Charlie's indigenous. But, like, the now kind of the, the native color, as it were, is, like, uh, Spanish-speaking people, right? And so, anyways, he comes to this town and, um, yeah, he's put in charge of this museum, which, like, isn't his field, right? He's a zoologist who's been put in charge of this, like, archaeology museum, basically. So he clearly has no idea what he's talking about. Because, like, the statue he shows Charlie to try and be like, see, leopards, violence, blah. And Charlie's like, yeah, I don't see it. Yeah, it doesn't look like a leopard. It doesn't look like anything. Like, so, you know, so he's this guy who doesn't understand the culture that he's in, but is totally willing to make judgments about it and is, you know, killing the people who are in it, right? Like he's, like you say, killing all these locals. And the point of the procession is it's where, you know, the climax of the movie is when he's feeling all of this guilt that they're bringing out of him and, you know, the guilt over all these murders he's caused. And the procession is about Catholic monks basically doing repentance for the conquistadors killing all the indigenous people. In other words, the procession is about white guilt over the death of the indigenous people they've caused, and we're getting it as the white guy is feeling guilt about the death of the native, uh, you know, the, the local townsfolk that he's caused. Okay. Right? Like, to me, that all connected really clearly. That part of the movie was clear, and I, I don't think it's just because we're coming off of I Walked With a Zombie, because it's another Luton Tourneur movie 
by the same screenwriter. So it's not as, I think, much of a stretch to say, like, that they have themes that they're going to keep coming back to that are, are little pet themes, right? What's strange to me, then, is that we're following Jerry and Kiki, who are, like, seemingly just shoehorned in here to try to, like, solve the case. And, like, it, it just, it, yeah. Jerry and Kiki feel the least like a Luton movie. You know, yeah. I've already said it, right? Yeah, yeah. They feel like your standard horror movie protagonist and female lead, who are just here to drive the story forward, right? You don't really need them. Yeah, you need an explanation for, like, how this leopard got loose or whatever, but pretty much after that, like, there's no real point, other than their story is also about guilt. So the difference here is Jerry and Kiki are also a bunch of white outsiders who came to this town. They also feel guilty because it's their fault the leopard got loose, and that caused the whole thing if you want to buy Galbraith's um, explanation that he started killing because of the leopard. So the difference is what we have here are basically two examples of white guilt, but we have a basically a heroic one and a villainous one, right? We've got this guy who is killing all these people, and he feels guilty about it, but, like, what does he do about it? Well, nothing, right? He just gives the police a lot of information to try and shift the blame to, like, oh, it was a leopard. Then you have Kiki and Jerry who feel guilty, so they can't even leave the town to go to their next gig, right? They have to stay and make sure this town is safe and, like, clear the names of these people and, like, get the guy who's really doing it, and that guy's, like, this other white guy, and we're going to, like, take him down and like, make sure he gets what's coming to him. And then, like, Ral, who's a local, gets to have his revenge. So I think if we want to continue this metaphor, Kiki and Jerry are an example of, like, quote-unquote, like, good white allyship. Um, you know what I mean? Like, or this, at least this movie's um, conception of it. Of, like, hey, you also have some responsibility for what's happened here, right? Like, even though you're not as directly responsible as this other dude, like, you still have a debt that you have to pay to this town, and, you know, you have to find a way to step up and help these people in order to make up for what you've done, right? So that's that's my best way of getting Kiki and Jerry to feel like they're meant to be here and not just thrown in because a studio exec insisted on it. Yeah. Um, but if it was a studio exec who insisted on it, it kind of gives more weight to Luton's decision of being like, nah, I'm good with B-movies. Stay out of my office. Mm -hmm. I do like, as much as it's divorced from the rest of the movie, I did like their arc of recognizing that it's okay to be soft. Like, yeah. that's literally the words they use in this movie, yeah. which was wild. Um, but yeah, like, that it's okay to feel feelings and it's okay to admit you care about people and stuff. And I thought that was a really cool thing to see in a movie from the 1940s, which feels like kind of the zenith of the, like, ah, I'm a tough guy and don't care about nobody but myself, see? Kind of, like, archetype. Sure. I will say we've been ragging on this movie a little bit, but the script is very smart, actually, though. Like, <laughs> um... Yeah. In, in the sense that there are no loose ends, <clears throat> that, like, every clue or element that is set up is paid off later, right? Like, every bit of information we get is a clue that makes sense later in the movie. You know, even with Consuela, where she has this, like, long sidestep where the movie suddenly becomes, like, 
you know, this, like, telenovela for a little while with, like, oh, you know, and Raul, and I'm going to sneak out, and, like, here's Rosita, and she's the maid, and she's helping. And you're like, wait, what? But it's all there so that we have Raul at the end <laughs> to shoot the doctor, right? Um, and there's a lot of examples of that through the movie of, like, every little bit of information makes sense. The only thing that's, like, a little bit of a point against the screenplay for me, and I'm not even sure how much to blame it on, this movie, is how obvious Galbraith being the killer is. Okay, listen. We are here in 2019, 70 years later after this movie, and we have experienced slasher flicks left, right, and center. Yeah. Not to mention, like, fucking high school musical dude... Zac Efron playing fucking Ted Bundy in a movie this year. Like, we have, we have move, we, how many shows are there on TV where it's basically criminal minds, but like different versions, like NCIS, Law and Order. Yeah, yeah, that's what okay, I mean when okay, I say, okay. I, no, I'm, I'm with you. That's what I mean when I say I'm not sure how much to blame the movie for that, right? Yeah, I Because what think... I, what I don't have a good sense of and what is impossible to have a good sense of is how obvious was that in 1943 to an audience? Because watching the movie here, now, this character who just shows up out of nowhere after the first <laughs> murder and, like, wasn't part of the cast until a second ago, and all he does in the story until he gets revealed is continually tell the lead character that he's wrong and that it was definitely a leopard and definitely not a dude. Like, it's it's very much like a doth protest too much kind of thing. <laughs> uh, so, you... Clearly, you know where I stand on this, where, like, I don't blame the script at all for that. I think I would agree with you that it's a very well-written and clever script because there's some interesting playing with tropes going on. Okay. Um, for example, Clo-Clo, we think, will be the first victim. Yes. And then she's not. Charlie, though it is a little far-fetched, is like, am I the leopard man? <laughs> And then, we, like, we see him in jail as Clo-Clo's walking by, um, and it just felt very reminiscent of, like, oh, are we now going to, like, the expectation being, like, are we going to cut back to him transforming right. into a creature? Sure. Um, especially, like, we know how RKO does their marketing. Mm -hmm. Like, they probably advertise that there would be an actual man who is, like, half leopard. Yeah, absolutely movie, right? they did. That is 100% what they did. Um, and in all of those movies, you have, like, a doctor character, thanks to Van Helsing kind of setting up the trope, being like, um, the leopard man tricks you. Yeah, he's there to deliver exposition, which is what Galbraith seems to be doing mm -hmm. through most of the movie. He's even the guy who gives the exposition on, like, how serial killers work when Jerry finally is like, right, but if it was a dude, what would that dude be like? Yeah. Um, even to the point of, like, Kiki's friend, who's the cigarette girl, we both thought she would be attacked. Yeah, because she's just this pretty young blonde girl who has no reason to be in the story. I thought the moment where she meets Dr. Galbraith was going to be the moment where the movie admitted he was the killer. Like, it was going to be that moment similar to, like, the end of Silence of the Lambs, right? Where, like, Clarice is looking for Buffalo oh, Bill, yeah. and she, like, knocks on the door, and he answers, and we know he's the killer, but she doesn't know. Like, I thought it was that moment, and then it wasn't. She just walks away, and she's fine. Yeah. So, uh, this movie, it's subverting our expectations so that not only the characters, but us as well, don't know who's going to be attacked next. Right. Um... At the same time, 
I think they're also setting up tropes for serial killer type movies mm. of like how the serial killer acts or how this film structure is. I think they're setting up some of those tropes here. I was disappointed by the suggestion that these are Galbraith's first murders. That the but killing... it's ambivalent, or it's ambiguous. That's why I used the word suggestion. Okay, okay. That the, the idea that the killing of Teresa is what inspired him to start feels like the movie trying to rationalize what it admitted earlier is an irrational thing, right? Like, they have this scene where they explain serial killers, and the script feels very well-researched on the topic of serial killers and leopards the same way that I Walked With a Zombie felt well-researched on the topic of voodoo. Um, you know, where they say, like, yeah, people like that kill because they have a, a kink in their brain, is the, the phrase they use in the movie. <laughs> very um, scientific. But, like, not for any specific reason. You know, the fact that there wasn't a specific reason for Consuela to die is one of Galbraith's points of, like, it must have been a leopard because she, you know, wasn't robbed and she had no enemies and, you know, listing off all the standard reasons for murder, right? But then, despite the fact that they admit that it's an irrationally motivated thing, trying to, at the end of the movie, be like, oh, well, he did it because of this feels like still trying to give the audience that satisfaction of, like, a rational explanation. I think it's giving the code a bit of an explanation. I, I mean, that's probably there, too. Um, but, yeah, like, I just didn't buy that part. I didn't buy it because surely his um, murderous urges are the reason why Galbraith had to stop teaching his actual subject and come west and get a random job as a curator, right? Um, definitely, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, I think the script does a pretty good job of, like, leaving it ambiguous. I think, you know, Dr. Galbraith is, like, being held at gunpoint at the climax of his guilt. Of course he's going to lie. Yeah, I don't know. It just felt like it was a, it was a bit of a disappointment after, like, this movie that I think had done a pretty good job so far. Up to that point, sure. I will say that James Bell is good as Galbraith, but I didn't 100% buy his post-reveal personality. Um, I think he gives it a good college try. He just doesn't quite pull it off for me. And I think part of that is, again, with this being the first serial killer movie, he feels like he's halfway to feeling like a believable psychopath. But, but he still has, like, one foot in being a traditional movie character, I guess, where, like, you know, when confronted with his guilt, he feels guilty and remorseful, right? Whereas, like, a lot of times when confronted and told, like, yeah, we got you, serial killers are like, okay, you've got me, and just, like, give themselves up to be arrested because they're psychopaths, and the definition of that is that you don't feel emotions that are in regard to other people, you mm -hmm. know? The other thing about Bell's performance as Galbraith is, I forget what movie it was, we've already seen one movie where, like, the nerdy professor turned out to be the murderer. I think that was Horror Island. It totally was. And this was kind of similar to that, where he's not quite believable as the murderer. He, he gives it a good try, you know, to look kind of, like, crazed and intense, and, like, there's this thing eating him up from the inside... I, I still don't quite buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, that's something that's kind of perfected as understandings of psychology 
get perfected as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And that seeps into the culture. For sure. Yeah. I will just say quickly, um, the movie has the usual good cinematography and sound design that we've come to expect. But there's nothing super innovative here either. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just the same thing they've been doing in the last two movies, but kind of pushed to the next level. Um, rather than coming up with a new thing, which is what the last two movies kind of had. Yeah. Well, where would you want to rank this? Well, Sarah, uh, when it comes to ranking this movie, I don't have a range. I just have a spot. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Where um, is that? So I am looking at number 24, below Vampire, above the man who changed his mind. Interesting. Reasoning? Well, as we alluded to at the start, this isn't as good as Cat People or I Walked with a Zombie. It's not up there with those movies in the top ten. But like those movies, it's still a serious attempt at horror um, that isn't reliant on mad scientists and, you know, supernatural monsters. In fact, this is the first Luton Tourneur movie that has nothing supernatural, not even an, ambi- not even an ambiguous hint of it. Um, you know, so it's got a lot of power still, you know, Teresa's murder, the, the sheer number of murder scenes really mm. give this movie a, a grisly power that I think puts it above the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde, for instance, which is not great. Or Man Who Changed His Mind, which is a lot of fun, but is about dudes swapping brains. On the other hand, we have, you know, I think in some detail illuminated why this movie isn't as good as the other Luton Turner movies. And for me, that puts it below stuff like Vampire and Cat in the Canary and The Phantom of the Opera, which don't quite have the same feeling of not hitting the mark that this movie does. I think this movie is shooting for something better than those movies, but it doesn't hit the mark, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I ended up there. Yeah, I'm good with that. But let me tell you about where I was originally thinking. Sure. Because um, you, you've convinced me. Oh, okay. Um, so where I was looking was, I was thinking about the power of Teresa's murder scene, and I recalled the other time, like the other murder scene in a movie that really affected me, and that's Murders in the Zoo. Yeah, I thought, that's, I thought that's where you were going to go, just from like the tone of your voice. Oh, okay. You get, like, a very specific (laughs) tone of voice when you start talking about Murders in the Zoo. Or, like, every other movie on the list is just a movie. But then, like, there's Murders in the Zoo, which might as well have actually happened for how, like, serious Sarah takes it. (laughs) Like, it's just a total tone shift whenever you talk about it. I did not even realize that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so that's that's where I was kind of considering my ceiling. Right below that is Fairman Maria. And honestly, I think Fairman Maria is better Mm -hmm. than this. Um, but that's, that's just kind of where I was kind of seeing a ceiling. And then I kind of worked my way down and kind of stopped around Mad Love and the Walking Dead at 19 and 20, Hmm. because this movie is aiming for something more, kind of as, as you put it. The Walking Dead is a fairly standard horror movie. It was quite interesting for the time with how it found a way to work within the code, but kind of seeing it as, like, almost like a bit of a slasher film in mm-hmm. and of itself. Right. Um, how did they, they handle each other? And I don't know. Um, so I was, I was just kind of, like, thinking about that. But because I was never, like, really set on a particular area, like, your 
reasoning for why it should go below Vampire, Cat in the Canary, Phantom, like especially Phantom, you, you, I forgot Phantom, I don't know why, but I forgot Phantom was there, and you're completely right, like Phantom got chopped up so many times, reshoot shot, um, adjusted here and there, even in just the, like, script stage, but mm -hmm. even post, and it is still fairly focused, whereas this film has a bit too much going on with too many characters a little bit and doesn't find a way to make it fully cohesive in the same way. Yeah, I think for me, my biggest takeaway from this movie is this is a movie that wanted to say something, but wasn't 100% sure how to say it. And therefore, I'm not quite sure what it was saying, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think I think you're right about, you know, this movie kind of belonging higher based on its ambitions but certainly the, the various flaws we've identified, it's like if you started at your floor and then you talk about the flaws and it just kind of kicks it down a few spots, you know? Yeah, definitely. All right, so entering the list at number 24, The Leopard Man from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur. He pounces in at number 24. Uh, if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many other episodes I mentioned in the beginning. Um, you can also find an appeals box if you would like to contest this or any other ranking. If you would like to submit questions, concerns, let us know if we missed a movie or anything like that, drop us a line there or email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review on those services, sharing the show with people on social media or in real life, or heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. Higher level patrons get access to regular bonus content, and if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we're going to start doing bonus episodes one a month on horror-adjacent movies. So that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we're watching Universal Studios' response to RKO and its success. Uh, we're watching their attempt to kind of capture that cat people magic. It's Captive Wild Woman. Oh, that yeah. is a terrible title. Mm -hmm. And we just came from three RKO titles. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.